You're listening to The Director's Box, a football business podcast. Here are your hosts, Raphael Geller and Jesse Forstott. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse, and today on The Director's Box, I'm joined by Raphael and former super agent, John Smith. Today, John will give us his take on a variety of topics that John has wealth of experience, including how the role of the football agent has evolved over the decades. John tells us about his career in England, including representing the interests of the English national team and of the legendary Diego Maradona, as well as how he was involved with the creation of the English Premier League. John also keeps us on our toes and up to date with the latest in- his latest endeavors, including a trip to North Korea, which he says is, a- is the next football hotbed. For those who don't know, John was considered one of the biggest names in the sports representation business for decades. He worked with the biggest stars in England and abroad, the most well-known being Argentina star Diego Maradona. John was the first commercial representative of the England cricket team, as well as the manager of commercial affairs of the Welsh national rugby team. He pioneered the promotion of North American sports in the UK as well. Our conversation with John was fascinating, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, John, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? We're doing well. Uh, it's a little wet here in London, um, but uh, all is good. Thank you very much. Corona is, is contained where you are. You're, you're safe. You're happy. Um, yeah. You know, I thought that because I, my family and I came back from Asia in February and we thought, and we were ill. We were ill for about 10, 14 days with this thing that we ticked all the Corona boxes. And so we thought we'd had it and it wasn't very pleasant, but we got through and um, we were all tested last week and we're all negative. So I haven't got a clue now. I just, um, I just hope that uh, we can protect. I mean, we've still got a hundred of people a day dying here. It's um, yeah. Although I'm not certain how many of them are of an age where they may have died anyway. Um, But even so, it's obviously not, quite under control yet and um, much as I appreciate and support a lot of the um, uh, protestations that are happening having all those people together in central London and various places around the world um, is not going to help the cause for socially distancing so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned of a second spike later this year but I think we just got to get on with life now yeah let's hope for the best I know obviously Jesse in New Jersey was in one of the worst hit areas in the world but Jesse's back, back out there, right, Jesse? Yeah, things are uh, things are starting to open up. Thankfully, there there are some some concerns about second spikes in some parts of the country. So, hoping for the best. Definitely, John. Obviously, you are you know one of the most uh, famous agents. You were part of the game in the beginning. The first question I want to get into with you today is. You know, in the era that you started, things were very different. What do you think of how kind of the football intermediary agent world has has become now that basically everyone can be an agent uh your uncle can be an agent the cousin can be an agent what do you think how has that changed everything from when you started to where we are right now well actually it's interesting it's sort of gone full circle because when i started in 1987 there was no regulation anybody could be an agent except most people didn't know what an agent did in those days so um, it, 
it got into a fairly regulated system. Whether whether you agree that the regulation was good, bad, or or indifferent, it there was at least a system. And FIFA dropped that system a few years ago, and it it, it became a bit of a sh a bit of a shopping area for anyone who might have known someone who might have known a footballer and thought they might be able to mine a little oil well in their back garden, and and so it it became a a really free for all, no expertise market, everyone tripping over everyone else's bootlaces. Um, but as ever, you know, the cream rises to the top and the big agents, I mean, I, for 25, 30 years, I, I was that agent. And the big guys who were alongside me at the time, like Jonathan Barnett and people like that at Stella and uh, WMG out of LA, um, they're still there. Right. They're, they're still good, doing good business, and you know we we kicked around before we started this this podcast today. People like Pini Zahavi, uh, Jorge Mendez, Minariola, all guys that I've known really well, um, and they're good at what they do. and And the role has expanded so vastly since the money grew that you've got to be good at what you do. You can't just turn up and hope to represent a player. There are all sorts of issues such as taxation and uh, international clearances. So the simple answer to your question is it's changed. It became the Wild West and FIFA under Gianni Infantino have put together a new modus which will reintroduce licensing. I was actually one of the people advising FIFA last year and every deal is going to be now listed on the what's called TMS transfer matching system, um, and uh, that will begin to regulate not just the people but the monies that pass hands in each transaction as well. So I'm hoping that by 2022, it was going to be 21, but because of COVID, it's going to be 22. I'm hoping that that will bring regulation back to the Wild West. Um, and of course, COVID will change the way we think and act and the sums of money that are inherent in the marketplace as well. I want to go back to, to Raiola because, uh, you know, as I was preparing for our interview, I read a lot of interviews that you gave and a lot of people asked you if you thought it was ridiculous the amount of money uh, that Raiola was getting for some of these deals. And I think in all of your interviews, all your answers, that is, you said that people don't realize how much money he invests in the players and that you believe that it's fair, the money that he's getting. Cause again, the average fan doesn't get that to represent these guys. It's not just showing up and being there for them. You also have to financially spend money from your own pocket. So I found that very interesting. I think it'd be interesting for our listeners. If you could kind of talk about that more, how people have the, this conception that agents just show up, sign the papers, get paid where you hinted in, in your answer that there's more to it than that. Well, the, the important word that you just articulated is conception. Um, any guys who are in the middle of broking international aircraft sales, for instance, where their commission may be in the tens of millions, um, or in some cases, hundreds of millions, the conception is, well, they're in the aircraft market. And if you're selling, you know, a thousand F1, F, F1 MiG fighters to Saudi Arabia, that's 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 part of the course. Football comes from a different uh, mindset. It comes from a different conceptional point. 
And that is that it's the game of the guy next door. It's our game. It's, you know, it's the working man's sport. It's grown out of roots that are tribal. And why should a Mineriola come in and bank 40 million pounds from a transfer deal? That's just not the way the game is. But, you know, when I, I was one of the people behind the beginning of the Premier League, I remember sitting with Murdoch and, and David D and all the people that, that began this league, <coughs> excuse me. And we always envisaged that to make the Premier League work, it had to be relatively rich. Uh, I'm talking back now, going back to 92. So in, 90, in the early 90s, a lot of the big money was down in Southern Europe. And at that time in Southern Europe, paying, paying tax was an optional extra in your life. Um, so you know, some of the, the, the deals that you did with players going into Italy and Spain and, and Greece, the taxation was, shall we say, a little bit relaxed. Whereas up here in England, we were paying 40% under, under, under Margaret Thatcher and, and then John Major, and it was, it was enforced. So we had to find extra money, and, and we also had to find money because the playing conditions were different here. They were much more physical, and the weather wasn't quite as enjoyable. Um, but we had a great game, and that's why the Premier League has been so successful. The, the, the volume of, of physicality, together with the talent that we've merged by being able to afford to pay for that talent, uh, has created probably the greatest entertainment, sporting entertainment on this planet. So from that premise, when you have those kind of monies in transactions that, that are fueled by the underbelly of, of, of that funding, which, is, which was, and probably won't be going forward quite as big because of COVID, but was a five billion pound broadcast deal. And that's just broadcast, by the way. On top of that, you had ticket sales and stadium naming sales and sponsorship sales and catering sales and beer sales and souvenirs and da 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 da. So there was lots of money in the sport. And you get a Mineriola coming in and broking a deal for a player that was arbitrarily, uh, I'm going back to the Pogba deal, I think it was out of Juve, where he was, he was arbitrarily put a value of 20 million. And there were, and there were kickers in that contract that said, if it, well, if you got more than 30 or got more than 40, got more than 50, then he would, he being Minnow, would get more money. Nobody, it wasn't even articulated in the contract that it would be north of 80 million. And it got to 89 million. And that's why he got 40 million. So my view is good luck to him. I don't, you know, I don't see it as a, as a problem. He's done nothing wrong. He's just been very lucky and, and, and did a very good job. So that's the simple answer. Um, and I don't think any more in, in 2020 and going forward that the agent is just going to turn up and ask for big sums of, of money without being able to prove that they know what they're doing. Because what's going to happen is, we just talked about it, is new regulation. And what's going to happen even more so are the families are going to get more and more involved with the players. Because this is the family's one opportunity to make a fortune. And they will. So it's the role of the agent is going to change dynamically over the next five years. Take me back to the beginning of uh, when you're working on construction, constructing, excuse me, this TV deal for the Premier League. Obviously, everyone just watched uh, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan interview, and, and kind of saw the impact that he made on the glo global 
uh, stage how much the NBA increased after his kind of popularity and what he did for the game for the NBA. Did you have a vision when you were working on these TV deals in the 90s when the Premier League was about to be formed? Did you have a vision that it would be what it's like today? Is that something that, you know, 25, 30 years ago when you were working on it, you said this is this is going to happen. This is going to be the biggest league in the world. It's going to be the most money on TV deals. You're going to have the best players wanting to come here. Is that something that you really thought was possible? I had a vision. Was it going to be the biggest money in the world? No, I don't think we ever thought it would be. We thought it could be sizable um, because we had this little Australian guy, Rupert Murdoch, behind us. Um, and my role was, was to bring... I was the agent for the England football team at the time and also Diego Maradona. And my, my role was to bring entertainment to football because the Premier League started here in 92. If you look back to the 80s, it wasn't a good time for soccer, for football in the 80s. I mean, people were actually dying in stadia. We had High Soul and the Bradford Fire and all those things, and dreadful things. It doesn't get much worse. So, um, and there was I with the England football team. And all I was doing is I, I kind of copied the American playbook. Uh, I was the first of the agent to actually spend a lot of time. I had a home in LA from my days of being in, in <clears throat> excuse me, in the music business. And I used to go and see the LA Raiders and various other, and I so loved the, the, the way it was presented as, as entertainment with a sports event going on. So I had to kind of respect the integrity of the sport, but I wanted to wrap entertainment around it. And I was fortunate enough to bring in Coca-Cola and Mars and some of the big, um, the big commercial sponsors of sport in the US. And I, I managed to, to use a good expression, schlep them over to the UK. And with them came this sort of softer, more family feel to it all. You know, I remember in 1988 or 89, I used to go to Arsenal and they'd have a section called the family section. And they, were, they used to say, how wonderful it is we've got family section. And I used to think how shit it is that they, they need a family section. Because to me, that said that the rest of the ground was, was crap. But right. You're, right, if you went in the family section, you'd be okay. So I wanted to break out all that rubbish. I, 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 my role was to say to Murdoch and Sky and everything else, let's make it fun. And we did. And we did a few good and we did a few silly things. We put fireworks in half-time displays and... and I used to own the London Monarchs for a year as well. So I, I brought on the dancing girls. Everyone laughed and thought it was stupid. And it, that probably was because it really didn't work. But we did some good stuff as well because we took sport and we, we sold rights to FM radio instead of AM. And there was a whole purpose behind that mindset of mine because I thought with FM radio comes a whole new audience and they're called women. And which is exactly what we got we got women for the first time and then we could sell sexy guys like Rude Hullet, who I brought in and, and that, that became game changing. So that's kind of how it began to evolve. Yeah, I think that's my cue to, to hop in here as you're talking about how the US actually contributed to the rise of the Premier League, which I think a lot of Americans might be surprised to hear. Um, but that, that, make, that makes me want to ask you about it, it, I, yeah, I've also, like Raphael said, leading up to the show, especially I've read a lot of the interviews you've given and it's, and if, even if people haven't read too much about what you said recently, you can see from the story you just told 
about start, starting the most successful sports league, certainly in the world and probably in, in the history of sports. Um, you're, you, you can see where things are headed. That's kind of, that, that seems to be a skill that, that, that you have, at least in my estimation. And it's, it's a big part of, of what you do. So that really makes me want to ask you, given the state of things, where you think the, the Premier League is headed next. And I know that's kind of <clears throat> a vague question, but, you know, people like to talk a lot about a Super League, um, whether, uh, whether that ties into the Champions League. I gotta, I'd just be curious to get your take on maybe either where you think things are headed or, where, or what you think the next step should be for the Premier League, especially you hear a lot of people talking, for example, as the FA and the EFL and the Premier League are all trying to figure out what to do about promotion relegation and the EFL is a bit scared that uh, the Premier League is just, they, they're not going to want to have any teams relegated and they'll, they'll uh, want to cut ties because of course it's a massive jump in, in revenue when you go from the championship to the Premier League. So I, I know it's, there's a lot, I guess, in that question, but yeah, I'm, I, I'm just curious to hear about what you think, what you think is next because the, I think this evolution of the Premier League has been great the last decade or so. It's really, it's really grown. Uh, the TV deals have been massive and the salaries are not, have never been higher and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm curious to hear what you, what you think, I guess, is the next evolution. Okay. How many hours have we got on this podcast? <laughs> I have about two minutes to answer that. It's, an, it's, an, it's a very intelligent question because it's very relevant. Um, look, without question, and I speak to the owners of, most of the, all of the senior clubs around Europe fairly regularly. Um, without question, under the guise of UEFA, um, the senior clubs around Europe, and that includes the, the big clubs here in England, uh, were trying to create a revamped uh, Champions League, which initially dropped down to seven teams from each country. Uh, this is very recent. This was within the last 12 months. Um, and that would eat into the, there's only so much broadcast money that is available. And, uh, you know, even, even to the extent of Sky is now owned by Comcast and do Comcast need to spend 5 billion on, on soccer? I'm actually not sure that they do. Is Amazon going to play? Are Facebook going to play traditionally? Everyone thought they would, but Facebook have actually only dipped into Southeast Asia. Uh, Google have never really done anything in that market yet. Um, Facebook, by the way, um, hosts over a billion um, vocal interactions between supporters around the globe after every Premier League weekend. That's an awful lot of data they're collecting without actually spending a bean. So they may just be happy doing what they're doing. Amazon, if they chucked out five billion, it, don't suppose it would even be noticed by their by, <laughs> by their chief accountant. But no. <coughs> there's going to have to be a realignment. And UEFA and the senior clubs were, were talking about trying to take the high ground. So the senior clubs around Europe were trying to say, look, this is, this is the status quo. It's been great. Look what we've created in our leagues, particularly the Premier League, followed by uh, La Liga in Spain, followed by um, uh, probably Serie A in Italy. Um, and, and actually one of those leagues that was up and coming and wanted to play in the global game 
of super leagues was the MLS as well. And you know, they were they were talking about additional funding coming into their league so that a player can make a choice. I'm, I'm, shall I go to Inter Milan or shall I go to um, Man City or maybe New York City? So you know that was that 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 was part of the thinking too that we what we've got now we should change and, and the seriously senior clubs should kind of move to another league. Now that was pre-COVID, um, and I think all that's done. All that COVID has done in this regard is actually focus everybody on the finances now. So you've now got here in England four divisions, and I'm actually pretty friendly with the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, a guy called Oliver Dowden. He happens to be my local MP, and he's been a friend of mine for, I don't know, five or six years now. And I know that he wants to encourage football to invest south. He wants to get the senior football authorities and and, and and clubs to help the lower leagues. And I think they're gonna bring back crowds into the lower leagues before they bring them back into the, into the senior clubs at the top. But without funding, those two lower divisions are, can't exist. And I'm not sure the government are minded to put that money in. So you're gonna to have to you know, put the pause, press the pause button on what happens with the lower leagues. They may have to go part-time they may have to change dramatically. Now that leaves a lot of space at the top for change. And where I begin to see it happening is I think the senior clubs in, in England will want to match the senior clubs across Europe and they'll, it's not going to be a breakaway as such, but there's going to be an evolution where those leagues are going to change. The UEFA and the European leagues, I, the Premier League, um, with great great avarice because the Premier League has been the ultimate success and they want to detract from that and have some of it and as I started this little diatribe there's only so much money from so many sources that that can come from so if they revamp the senior European competitions that's going to take a lot of the cash that's going to be around broadcast and add to that the, the minor issue that COVID is going to keep supporters out of stadiums, certainly this calendar year, maybe into next year as well. And broadcast may not be badly affected because there'll be more people watching on screens, be they platforms or be they televisions. And those people are going to be in bigger audiences and therefore going to attract more advertising. So broadcast may lead this, and it probably will lead it, and I can see some serious pan-European changes. And what, what, what sort of change? What sort of form do you see those well, changes taking? Well, I think taking? as I said to you, it's going to be an it's going to come in the form of an enhanced Champions League. Meaning a separate one entirely, or changing the rules? Because no, the I one just change the rules, make it more embracing, make it richer, make it make it just the dominant. They want to break the Premier League dominance of audience because if you go you know i travel around the world a lot you go to asia and places like that they with the exception of a juve and a real madrid and what have you it's all man united liverpool chelsea arsenal you know that's where the audience i mean my my son works with arsenal fan tv in, in one of his one of his corporate lives they have a i think arsenal tv gets 1.5 million most weekends, Arsenal Fan TV gets 1.3 million, so they're right up there, but they get a 35 million audience during a month. And probably, I think it's now some 
40, 45%, 48% comes out of Asia and also Africa. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there watching Premier League and the European clubs and the big clubs around want, want that market back as part of their domain if they can. So in, in simple form, without rabbiting on too much longer, I think there's going to be a revamped UEFA Champions League, which is going to be more em embracing and demand more cash from the market, which will diminish some of the cash going to the Premier League, which will mean the Premier League has to revamp and probably include ultimately some of the championship as well. And what do you think that will do in terms of the, the, the revamped Champions League structure? What will that do to the non-big leagues on this, on this show? And Rafael and I just personally are very interested in... What do you mean by the non-big leagues? In, like the outside of the uh, France, Italy, England, um, well, the, the, the leagues that really depend on the, on the money. You know, there are some yeah, leagues think, that have half their turnover probably from making Champions League every year. I think they'll all be there, but there'll be more of them. So in other words, you know, Norway may get, I don't know, I can't remember now how many, people, how many teams come out of Norway. Let's say there's two goes into Champions League. They may get three but there'll be two qualifying rounds first. And all that is going to suck broadcast money. And where's he going to suck it from? It's the same broadcasters. So it's, it's going to suck out of their own home territory and it's going to suck out of the Premier League. So ultimately, that money is going to, going to shift to a broader-based, in my humble opinion, to a broader-based European competition in the coming five years. And that will be driven big time by the big clubs who see empty stadia because of social distancing. Um, I mean, you look at a club like Tottenham Hotspur, I, I was kicking this around with Daniel Levy a few weeks ago, and he didn't deny that my, my arithmetic might be correct. In the weeks since COVID stopped live football, to, and this conversation happened last month, it was back end of May, but you're talking mid-March to end of May, I worked out that Daniel would have to give back to his box holders, his hospitality um, uh, purchasers, and his season ticket holders, and just people that buy tickets, some 20 million pounds. And that's not including what he may have to give back to the caterer who's probably paid him a, quite a few million pounds up front for a three-year contract. And all the less loss of beer sales and merchandising and everything, everything, everything. So these guys are going to want to get some of their money back and they're going to want to revamp the competition because the Premier League as such has two more years to go on this deal. They're going to have to give some money back from this season, albeit not next year. And then then what? So I think they're going to hedge their bets and look wider than just a, an English football broadcast deal. Yeah, and I think it's going to, what's going on right now, unfortunately, is really going to, it might only amplify, I'm sure it will amplify the difference between the, the Premier League and all the, and the rest really in England, at least. Um, I know obviously there's the super clubs that make a lot more than everybody else in England, but even I think I've, I've seen, especially, you know, a club like Bournemouth, for example, or Aston Villa, I don't even think if they didn't have any match day revenue, if they didn't have fans in seats for an entire season, it wouldn't affect them that much. Um, and that's, partially because of their stadiums, but they only make some of these clubs on the lower end five to 10%, I think, from, of their total revenue. You're, is no, you're, from... you're absolutely right. I was talking to Mike Garlick last night, who owns Burnley. 
And he said, more or less that. He said, you know, we can happily exist off of broadcast. But that's not the point, is it? Because it's the whole, the whole experience. It's like going to the theater. You know, it's great to go to the theater, but you want to go in the right way. You want to, it's, it's an experience. It's, you know, to have socially distancing and, and people with masks. And so it's not quite, it's like someone going, I'm saying to my wife, Janine, for, I don't fancy even going to restaurants. I don't want to be served by some guy wearing a mask and blue gloves. And I don't know who's touched what in the kitchen. And, you know, all of our mindsets have been changed. So, yeah, the, the clubs, the smaller clubs can survive. The smaller ones of the bigger ones can survive. But you need the atmosphere. You need to create that tribalism that fuels, that makes this sport so unique to its own. And, you know, that how they do that is going to be educational in the coming year. Yeah, I mean, it's I agree with you. I think it's it's about the experience, right? People go to, to these type of things to get away from other things in their life. And if, if you don't have the same type of experience, it's it's very different. Uh, yeah. And that's something that I think, you know, a lot of fans are start struggling with right now. But at the same time in life, you have to give what's given to you. And if the only way to play is behind closed doors, because that's what the health professionals think for now, uh, then, you know, that's what you have to do. But I, I would say that I think in lots of parts of Europe, we'll, we're seeing that fans are allowed into stadiums, uh, which is exciting. You know, it's, it's, it's something Look, that- it probably, will it probably will come back, you know, if there's not a huge spike from all the recent protest uh, right. marches um, around, well, not just around Europe, around the world, if there's not a spike up from that, pressure will be on the authorities to be more relaxed in how they fill stadiums again. I mean, right. the, the big thing is you can socially distance in a stadium to a degree. You know, if you've got a 60,000 seat stadium, you can certainly put 30 odd thousand people in, in there. The, but the, the problem is how you get them there because you have to stagger all that because you, know, you go to Spurs, there's 30,000, 60,000 seat stadium, that's fine. But they all turn up at, you know, half past two. Then it's a problem because you've only got public transport. And so you're going to have to stagger uh, entrance times and you can stagger exit times because they're all in one place you can let them out bit by bit but getting them all there is going to be a bit of a science so it's just another mindset you have to look at right let's let's go now to the fans agency which is something that uh has gone a lot of buzz and it's super interesting more interesting that someone like you would want to be part of it when you've accomplished everything you have to me it was to me that was the most interesting part about it i mean i listened to a lot of your interviews about it but I'm curious to hear uh, more about why you thought this could be a really cool project and what is the future with the fans agency and where are everything, where is everything stand right now with, with, with COVID and did that delay things and just give us an update on what's going on with it. Um, yeah, it was a bit wacky. This, I, my, my biography, um, the deal came out I think three, four years ago and did rather well, uh, fortunately. And, um, I, I did the traditional book tour. Uh, a lot of it was at universities. I went to places like uh, Sussex University, Edinburgh University, and also Oxford, which was which was quite intimidating because they're really bright up there. I'm not that they're not bright in, in all the other places, but, they, but when the masters turn up wearing their headboards and stuff, you realize that you're in a, a real academic environment. Um, so a lot of the students, came up after my talks and said, oh, I really, 
I'd like to be an agent and you know, could you help or can you advise or whatever. Um, but the more I got into it, the more I realized that some of these guys actually were, they'd studied the game, they'd looked around it, they, they were obviously very bright because they were at university. And I just felt like I wanted to help. And it, it spun out of a night at Oxford University when I sat in the bar for about three hours afterwards with these six or seven guys. And I said, look, yeah, just tell me what you want me to do. I, I, you know, I can talk to you and give you my views, but um, I want to hear from you. And they just, they were so impressive and they were raising money on Crowdcube to form an agency. And we just said, oh, let's call it the fans agency. And, you know, they offered me, would I like to be non-exec chair of it? I said, yeah, I will. And I put some of the investor guys who I know into it and they raised half a million pounds and they signed a few players and we did a few things and then COVID happened. Uh, what happens next? I think, um, uh, I think we probably will fast track it with another funding raise and go and buy something big to put in it and make it and just let, just lift it up to its, um, to its next level. It, it's, that's, that's the positive. The negative has been that I was hoping the fans would come out and just say, oh, I've got a mate and he plays for, uh, um, I don't know, some, some team in the, in the northern, uh, uh, northeast of England local league. And, you know, he's, 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 he's very good and we'll send a scout and, and, and we'll help them through. In fact, we have had a lot of recommendations, but they've been at a, a quite a low level where we haven't been able to do what I wanted to do. Um, and there's been a little kickback from some of the players to say, well, I'm not sure I want to be represented by the fans because it just looks a bit iffy. So I think we'll keep the ethos of what they're doing because they're good guys and they're actually doing some good work. And I think we just need to change the model a little bit. So we're in that discussion process now. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's very interesting because it's, it's, I feel like, you know, so many people dream of, of being a football agent or they, they see, you know, the movies like Jerry Maguire and they see all those things and they read the stories and they want to be involved. And you know, that was, that was exactly it. Raphael. Yeah. I just, I wanted, I wanted people to sit in, in, in pubs when they eventually go back to pubs and bars and say, Oh, what do you think of that guy's way? That, that guy that signed for, um, uh, for Southampton and he's on, he's on, you know, 120 grand a week. And, the other guy next to goes, yeah, yeah, he's part of that agency. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think we did quite a good job on that. <laughs> you know, I just think, I thought that'd be a really cool thing to happen. But as it happens, I think there's going to be an almighty realignment of players' wages anyway in the coming uh, 24 months. But yes, that I just wanted to, it was the one domain where the fans complained and I wanted them to be part of it to see how enjoyable and how creative this part of the, football world was yeah well we'll keep an eye on it and see what, what goes on with that. i just i thought it was really cool that you would be involved because you would think someone it's just i don't know to me it was so cool that you wanted to, to help these people because you would be the one people like you would be the type of people who wouldn't want to help these people so to me that was uh that was really cool um this my is a question Raphael, my best times <laughs> some of the deals that i did uh, we did some crap deals as well, but some of the deals that I did, uh, I remember we took Kevin Phillips, he was 
lovely player at Watford, but he was going out the game because it wasn't working for him. And we managed to get Sunderland. Peter Reed was the coach at the time. We managed to lean on Peter and twist his arm nicely and say, so, you know, just take him up and have a look at him. And he's, he's great. He's good. He's all this. And, you know, obviously Peter knew him. Took him up sort of on trial for a couple of weeks, then signed him. And he became an absolute hero. I mean, he was one of the greatest players Sunderland have ever had. Um, and my best moments, some of the fans who knew that I was involved coming up to us afterwards, virtually hugging and kissing us, saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. That was the best thing this tap to his club for so long. You can't buy moments like that. That's, right. that's Priceless. Priceless, right? I, I want to ask you, this is a question that people have asked me and obviously you'd have a billion times more experience and I'm very curious to get your thoughts, but a lot of time clubs see deals, uh, excuse me, fans, supporters see deals happen on TV and fans say among themselves, oh, that agent has a really good relationship uh, with that chairman. That team didn't really want him, but there's a good relationship there. How many deals do you think happen in world football at a large, you know, multi-million pound transaction where you know, the relationship of the agent and the chairman is what gets the deal over the line. Now, I'm not saying that, that the coach doesn't want the player. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that, you know, the agent is the one that really can push it with the chairman who's, who's paying that money. Um, and the reason that he can do it is because they've worked together for many years. The agents made the chairman money on other transactions. But how often is it the case when an agent is the one to get a deal over the line? And it's, it, and it's not necessarily just about the footballing skills of the player. It's a good question, Raphael, because, um, you know, as we were, as we were saying, uh, when I answered uh, Jesse's question just before, it's, it's all about, um, ultimately, it's all, it, of course, it's about football. That's the most important thing. And getting the right player and the right team and the right circumstances and the right blend with the right players and the coaches and da 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 da, da that's, that's the be all and end all, full stop. But the second paragraph, of that reads that there are lots and lots of senior football clubs, people like uh, clubs like Dynamo, Kiev, um, and, and that vast array of Eastern European clubs, and even clubs in in England. When you look at their balance sheets, you look at someone like West Ham. It's actually a very well-run club, but they stand or fall in their accounts by their player trading. So, in most cases. West Ham would make a sizable profit unless they have a bad year and they brought in a new manager and he's bought six players and he sold two. And so match that with the clubs, like as I just said, Dynamo Kiev or, or, um, uh, uh, or some of the lower Italian league clubs or the, some of the lower Spanish league clubs like a Malaga or something like that. <coughs> and they will use the trading entity of players as a way of running their business. So their model is predicated on obviously football to a degree, maybe 60% of their income is, is football and 40% is what they trade out on players or even the other way around. So there are agents who have certain relationships with clubs. I've used Eastern European because they're, they're more prevalent there. Um, and they will sell players into those clubs and they'll harvest them and sell them on because that's what they do. Because the, the player sales drive bigger numbers, unless obviously you're a senior Premier League club or a senior La Liga club, they drive bigger numbers than anything else in their business. 
But, so, but do you think that, to, sorry to interrupt, but do you think okay. that the, the agents sending those players are telling the chairman, you're going to buy this player for $5 million at, at Malaga and, and this player is good enough that you're going to be able to sell him for $20 million. Is that what the agent is pitching to the chairman? Well, it's part of it, but it becomes a partnership. Um, you know, I think in any business, if you're buying a product from a wholesaler, you have to have faith in your wholesaler or your supplier in the products, the products, plural, that you are purchasing. So if I'm, if I'm buying, um, I don't know, soft furnishings from a particular manufacturer, and he says, oh, you know, next year we've got this new fabric and it's great and it's pink because everyone's going to be buying pink because it's because it is, it's the color. Blah, blah. And I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm largely going to trust my supplier until he goofs up once or twice. But if, they, if they're relatively successful in their track record, you can, and I say to a club like Lazio, you know, take him, believe me, he's good. I mean, slightly different these these days, guys, because there are stats in the mix. You know, you can see that's, I, that's exactly where I wanted to go next. I mean, do you think <laughs> these, you know, these an agent recommends a player, right? And you say he's great, and the chairman believes you. Then five minutes later, someone knocks on his door, and it's a sports scientist, it's the performance analyst, it's it's all those guys, and they go, you know, we ran all the stats and analytics on him, and. You know, don't trust John Smith because he's not going to adjust because his left foot, blah, 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 blah. How much do you think that all those, you know, sports scientists and analytics has changed the game for just for agents and in general for being able to get deals done that there's now more to look into besides just statistics of how many goals he scored or whether people think he's a good defensive midfielder or center back. How much has that changed the role for agents? For sure it has, yeah, absolutely colored the judgment of the purchaser. And, and, and quite rightly, you know, you should know the stats. Um, I mean, Arsenal were one of the very first people to do that. And the fact they, they bought an agency, I think it was in Boston, uh, a stats agency called StatDK or yep. something. I can't remember what, what it was called. Anyway, they, they've cited it in the warehouse in Cambodia now. <laughs> And it's got us down every single professional footballer in the world. Right. But, you know, it's very, um, it's, uh, stats only say so much though. You know, the eye of the coach and the heart of the, of the training camp around the coach and the, the professionals that advise and ultimately the ability for the chairman, chief executive finance officer to realize that unless he completely goofs up, this guy is cheap at that price and we're going to make a profit on him. So all of those three now play, rather than in my earlier days where I'd, I'd go and see some of these people. I, I remember years ago when Gorbachev cut the lines, the finance lines to the satellite states in Eastern Europe, I was called by the by General Yaratseltsis, the then Prime Minister, or then the President of Poland, I was right. called by, by his government to come and sell the registrations of the Polish national team because they wow. didn't have the money. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, we, we did. And we sold a guy called Jakonowski went to, went to Celtic and performed brilliantly. And you know, some did and some didn't. But we, we made the Polish government a few million pounds. Um, 
and we traded those players through. Now, I mean, in those days, there weren't any stats really. And today, people may have said, oh, you know, he's, he's this, he's that. And my answer would have been, yeah, but it's the Polish league. And I've got a similar situation, funnily enough, in my life now. I was asked um, some nine months ago, no, a little bit more now, maybe 12 months ago, by the North Koreans to go to Pyongyang and talk to them about sporting excellence. Wow. Uh, and I did. <laughs> so I trotted off to Pyongyang. Uh, you went? Last, it was a, a year ago, last April, uh, just this April just gone. In fact, wow. I, was, I was due back there at the beginning of this year, the earlier part of this year, but obviously with COVID, I couldn't come back. Um, in fact, I've been talking to them again the last couple of weeks, but, but they've got a four week quarantine when you go in there. As nice as they were to me, I don't really want to spend four weeks in, uh, in North Korea in quarantine. Yeah. Um, not least of all, because I didn't like the food very much. Can't but, imagine why. You know, it's just lots of kimchi, which I don't like. Uh, but there's, um, the funny thing for me was that I found a market again where nobody knows how good they are or they aren't. So I could say, because uh, one of my other sons um, is a is quite a successful football agent, I could say, take this player and let's go sell him because he's good, and people would have to believe me. So right. we may see, we will see, some North Korean players coming out in the next twelve months. And uh, if I'm right, it's going to be, uh, it'll, it'll mine a rich theme of talent because the North Koreans are a bit miffed that Son and some of the others have taken all the headlines from the South. And they think their players are just as good. And actually, from what I saw, they are very good. They're not quite as worldly because they don't play anybody really, but they are very good. So that will, um, that will um, put. Um, oh. We'll keep an eye on that. (laughs) I think you touched John on something that I wanted to ask next. Now, once I recover from, uh, from the shock, I wasn't expecting to be talking about North Korea as the next, the next hotbed of of football (laughs) in town, but that's, that's why we do this. Um, But no, I think it popped into my head actually before uh, with the last question Raphael asked when I was listening to your answer, but how do you think, Agents, because I mean, in my view, agents have really contributed to the globalization of the sport, um, which it kind of, which you, I mean, you really just alluded to, uh, which you just alluded to with everything you were saying, whether it's North Korea, Ukraine, Eastern Europe. Um, but I'll tie it into the transfer fees as well, because I read that I think in Croatia, for example, their their revenue from their transfer fees from selling players is like, I think four pounds to one compared to the other traditional streams of revenue. So ticket sales, whatever local broadcasting rights they have. So the point is the, what popped into my head is, you know, I'm sure decades ago, uh, the sporting director of a, of a le- of a club in a, in a smaller league, let's say, you know, the, Dyn- the Dynamo Zagreb sporting director, years ago wouldn't have had access to players from, from as far away from anywhere like he does now. And to me, agents play a big role in that where some, again, a lot of people are cynical about transfer fees that are paid, but I kind of see it the other way. I mean, how is, how is uh, someone from Ukraine or from the Israel Premier League or Croatia or any of these places that are kind of in the far reaches, like it's kind of brought them to the forefront. 
at least again, the way I see it, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. If, if you think that having the relationships with agents actually gives clubs access to, to more transfer fees. And again, just uh, the way economics works, you know, the more players you have access to, the more clubs and other countries you have relationships with, the, the better chance you have to, to make more money and sell players for higher prices into different places. But yeah, I'd love to get your, your take on that. Well, Jesse, I guess you would expect me to say this, but uh, you've actually hit the nail on, on the head. We, the collective, um, we, the football agents, uh, I think are more responsible for the advent of uh, global football talent being platformed in the major leagues than any other part of the footballing sport or the footballing industry. So um, people like Michael Essien, who I know very well have worked with over the, over the years, coming with these academies of, of African players in places like, like Ghana, we've taken quality players out of that and brought them into Europe. You know, you wouldn't expect 20 years ago for players from Sierra Leone to be playing in the north of England, but they do in Ivory Coast and, and places like, like that. Um, we've done that globally, taking players out of Asia. I mean, my, if I was 30 years younger, because I think it's going to be probably a, a 10 to 30 year haul, I would be mining India now for all its potential talent, because that's, I think India is the final frontier for me. It's not produced, oh, we, we did have Michael Chopra, mind you, we put him into Blackburn, the only Indian with a, with a Lancastrian accent, but he was, he wasn't, he, did, he wasn't great. He was a good player, but he wasn't great. But the, the players that come out of India, and football's getting quite a good rep in India now with the ISL, it's quite a, it's quite a cosmopolitan league, getting good crowds. The facilities aren't great yet, but in the next two decades, they're going to produce some superstars, like South Korea is now, like Japan did. And it'll ultimately be the agents that will mine those, and I use that in as, as soft a terminology as I can, but they'll, they're the guys that will pinpoint them and bring them into Europe. And I'm not saying, by the way, everything has to go to Europe because I think the U.S. has got a big part to play in football going forward. And I think Asia itself has a big part to play. And it depends how the broadcasters promote their product as much as the European product. Obviously, the European product's got, still got the reputation and in my lifetime probably will retain that. But more and more the games become global and that's predominantly because of football agents because a lot of the scouts and football clubs traditionally especially here in England because we're in Ireland and we are of Ireland mentality were really their knowledge was very local so I think it's a good thing it's it's funny you mentioned that John because our, our company uh, does a lot of business in India we've worked with a lot of the British managers who've been there worked with a lot of the players and we identified the India Super League as a league on the rise and we've been very lucky to work with uh, a lot of coaches from England, John Gregory, Renee Molenstein, are guys that have we've had good uh, relationships with. Uh, yeah, you, you picked the wrong podcast to say that on at the at the end of the show. Yeah, we could talk <laughs> about the India the India Super League for hours. It's it's a, everything you said was really fascinating. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, and I have two questions. 
I wish we had more time and I feel like we could talk for hours, but the two questions I have, and, and I know, you know, we don't want to focus on what everyone asks you, but you can't have John Smith on and not ask him to tell you one of a crazy Maradona story. You can't, uh, you can't do it. So we're going to, we're going to, you know, we stayed away from most interview of doing the typical questions that you usually ask, but you, you got to ask a, a Diego Maradona story. You, you got to tell us one before you go. I mean, that's, we have hey. to hear. All right. Well, there's, 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 there are a few. Um, there's two that spring to mind. Um, one is just the, the stupidity of the fact that he was a, a big fan of Ferrari motor cars and he had a collection of them in his garage in Napoli. And uh, he <laughs> they used to get wrecked because he'd go in the street. The streets of Naples, the streets of Naples are actually very, very, very narrow, quite a few of them. And they've got big pictures, very religious city in southern Italy, big pictures of Jesus hanging from buildings. And next to Jesus is big pictures of Maradona. Was, he was right up there. So he'd drive this, his cars through, Nap through the streets of Naples and they'd, they'd stop the traffic lights. And literally, people would jump all over the car. So he, he had a number of Ferraris ruined. And one of my best jobs was to speak to the Napoli police and get him the right to the the only person I've ever known the right to drive through red traffic lights. <laughs> so that that was one of my silliest and funniest and we and laughed. He, and he we got laughed. permission. You got, got the permission. He got the permission and we, we we he and I and a few people laughed like a drain when we when we actually got the little note from the police commissioner that he could do this. <laughs> he had to keep it in the car in case he got stopped. I guess but, when when you win the lead story, Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, when you win the league for Napoli, uh, they let you do anything, I, I guess. Well, that was, yeah, that was right up there with it, I guess. But the, um, the other story was just a personal one. I, I used to go to a restaurant here where I live. Um, uh, it was run by a friend of mine called Miguel. It was a very, very successful restaurant, and you had to book weeks in advance to get in there. And it was like one of those very fashionable, swish Italian restaurants. And he was a, Miguel, he was a huge football fan. And I used to get these free dinners. It was quite, it was quite embarrassing really, because I'd walk in there and he'd go, hey, Mr. John, and we'd get another free, free dinner. And he, his idol was Maradona. And that's why I got the free dinners. So in 1980, when it was 87, maybe, I, um, I brought Diego here to play in the England International, no, the Football League, was the Football League or Football Association Centenary? I think it was the Football League Centenary. Anyway, he played, it was big news, he arrived, he was in England, it was all big, big, big stuff, especially post the 86 World Cup. Um, and after the game, whenever I had him in London, he always used to go out for evenings with his friends in a nightclub called Tramp. And he said to me after a game in his terrible English, now I want to see the English countryside. It was a Saturday night. And we did the press conference at Wembley. And at about eight o'clock on Saturday night, he said, okay, so now we go. Um, he had his wife and little, little baby Dalma, who must be in her 30s now. Um, and I phoned Miguel. I said, hi, Miguel, it's John. Uh, you got a table for tonight? He said, no, oh, Saturday, we're very busy. But yeah, for you, yeah, we finally squeeze you somewhere. He said, just you and uh, Janine? I went, mm, there's a few experts. He said, how many? I said, there's 32 of us. 
he said, oh, I can't do this. It's, I've got 32, 32 people in a restaurant. I can't do any of this tonight. I don't, I don't do anything I can for you, but I can't do it now. Uh, no, no, can we do another day? I went, no, no, no. One of them, by the way, is Diego Maradona. And there was a pause and he went, okay, no problem. <laughs> yeah, and we, t we turned up and there were 32 of us, including Gary Lineker was actually with us. I don't quite remember why, but he was there anyway. And he just he, decided we, to show up. <laughs> we all turned up and all the restaurant people had been shoved into a corner of this big table in the middle and Miguelie came out and he looked at me and next to me is Diego Maradona and he looked at Diego and he looked at me and he looked at Diego and his little tear just rolled down his cheek because <laughs> this was his moment this was his he lived for this moment and um so that but I guess you know those are priceless moments that you can't really legislate for I, I remember it like it was yesterday a bit like the Kevin Phillips story you know there's just moments like that and Diego was was wonderful he was very he was two people he was Maradona when he performed but he was Diego lovely Diego and then he was by himself just with his mates well honestly I can't really think of a better way to end end our interview because that was uh, two amazing stories and John, we really appreciate uh, you coming on. We know you're very busy and we know you're not planning your next Korea, a trip to North Korea. Um, but, but thank you, really. We, we really appreciated it. Uh, we, we learned a lot of new information and it's exciting to see what the future will hold. Let's talk, let's talk again because I, I will be doing stuff in North Korea. And I, they were so, I mean, let's say that the, the politics are, put that aside for a moment and it's, it's a difficult it's a difficult situation but it's it's all wrapped up with china and various other things that may or may not be happening as well but the, but the talent is sorry this is my brother ringing on the other line and i'm gonna oh, no problem no uh, the uh the talent in north korea is sizable and that's what i'm focusing on there's, there's a lot of sporting talent and i want to help it platform so i will be doing more there and there will be another chapter here so i'd, I'd be delighted to sit and have a chat with you about um, talent in North Korea at some point. Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. Thanks for having me around, guys. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a lovely day. And hopefully um, one day you'll come to Israel and we'll get to meet as well. I, I was in and out a lot. I, uh, had a, I had family there. I bought a place for my aunt who lived in Jerusalem all, all of her life. And sadly, she's no longer with us. Uh, so I don't come so often now. But but I'll be there. It's kind of my second home, really. It is my second home. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. Take, take I it appreciate easy, it, John. Stay well. Thank you. And Cheers, John. Have a great day. Stay healthy to all your family. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. First, I really want to thank everyone for listening and for all of their feedback. If you enjoyed the show, I would really like to encourage you to hit the subscribe button so that you stay up to date on all of our latest episode. Thanks again.